on over and have a great time learning about Christ. And uh, the rest of you, would you turn to Psalm 42? It's on page 268 of the the Bibles in the seats uh, in front of you. And we are nearing the end of our summer series as we look at uh, the several select psalms. And just a couple more weeks left of that. And in preparation for this psalm, uh, there are, I think we would all agree, there's different types of personalities. Um, Some of you are outgoing and the life of the party like me. And some of you not so much. Uh, Some of you are more uh, spontaneous, while others are are more steady. Uh, But I think we'd all agree that no matter what your personality is, no one is immune from the, the spiritual valleys of life. We've all had those as believers, spiritual valleys. I've been a Christian for around 25 years, and I've certainly had times in my life when I have just devoured God's Word and really enjoyed uh, reading His Word and worshiping and being around other believers, and I've certainly had times in my, my Christian life when I felt distant from God, and that's been more, more difficult for me to experience God before. So today we're going to look at a psalm that addresses those valleys in our spiritual lives. And it's an instructive psalm. You'll see, if, you, if you're looking at Psalm 42, you'll see that word masculine at the very beginning. It's a masculine of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were musicians. We don't really know what the word masculine means, but it likely means to make someone wise or to instruct. So what we have here is a song that is wisely written or a song that instructs. We need some instruction and some wisdom on this topic today. So uh, Brandon Remus is going to come up and read Psalm 42 for us. Brandon is one of our pastoral residents and also working with college students, so uh, please read along with him as he reads Psalm 42. Brandon. 
So if, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I, I think if we're honest, we'll agree that, that we've experienced this before, this, this uh, thing that this, this topic that this psalm addresses. And maybe you're in the midst of it right now. And maybe your fear is that if, if it continues much longer, it's going to overwhelm you. Or perhaps you're a newer Christian and you haven't yet experienced this and, and you, you're thinking, this is not possible. How could this possibly happen? But let me uh, not be the bearer of bad news, but let me just warn you and, and encourage you that this will happen and we need to be prepared for this because it is going to come. And what, what is this that we're talking about? What is this that this psalm addresses? And it's something called spiritual depression. It's a spiritual dryness, a lack of connection with God. So at one point you were able to experience God, but now you're not able to experience him in the same way that you once did. The Bible is, is remarkably frank and forthright as it talks about all the, all the various topics that are, are relevant to our lives. We've seen that as we've looked at the Psalms this summer. This is God's living word that he has given to us, and, and thank God that he has given it to us so that we can understand some of these things that we go through in just our, our normal Christian life, the normal life that we live. And Psalm 42 tackles spiritual depression head on. In fact, the Bible tells us that at times our metaphorical spiritual tank seems empty, but God has provided the cure and the way to connect with and remain faithful to him. So today we're going to talk about spiritual depression, going to define it. We're also going to talk about some of the cures for spiritual depression. Uh, What does the Bible say are the the ways to to address those times in our life when when we're feeling distant from God? And then we're going to talk about the the means behind those, those cures or the power behind those cures. So first, what is spiritual depression? Let me uh, just be clear that this is different from physical depression. So when I'm talking about spiritual depression, I'm not talking about physical or emotional depression. You can be physically depressed and not spiritually depressed. Or you can be spiritually depressed and not physically depressed. Or you can be both. but, But what I'm talking about today is spiritual depression, what this psalm addresses. So I'm going to attempt to describe or define spiritual depression by example. So perhaps you used to find some measure of joy in reading scripture, but now when you're in the midst of spiritual depression, it feels more like, more like a chore. Or perhaps you used to take joy in honoring God by using your gifts or by serving, but now not so much. It feels more like an obligation. So you remember your faith. You're still a believer but you just struggle to connect with God in the same way that you used to connect with him. So instead of pulling into the station, to use that analogy, instead of pulling into the station to top off your tank by reading scripture, by spending time with other believers, by giving, by serving, instead of going into the station to fill up your tank, you've lost your way to the station, or it feels as though you've lost your way to the station. And even worse than that, if this goes on for too long, then you can begin to doubt your salvation. You can begin to doubt the promises of God. You can be, begin to doubt whether you're actually a believer. And then we will go elsewhere to try to find that filling of our tank. We'll go to friends or career or Netflix or whatever else trying to find something that will fill us up. So look at verses 1 and 2 again. 
It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, uh, there's a lot of poetry and analogy in this. I'm not very good at poetry, uh, certainly not very good at Hebrew poetry. The, the extent of my Poetic ability was around 25 years ago when I was trying to win my wife. And uh, I can assure you that's, I don't know why she chose to be with me, but that's not why. Uh, it was not my poetic ability. But to point out what may or may not be obvious in these first two verses, is the deer is us. We are the deer. The deer is the Christian, the believer. And God is the flowing streams. So from the passage, does the deer know where the flowing streams are? Yeah, the deer is not stupid. The deer knows where to go to find flowing streams. But what may or may not be obvious at first glance or at first reading is that he's come to the brook and there's no water. It's dry. He finds the place that he used to go to find refreshment. He now finds that it's dry. So this is a metaphor that speaks to and is carried out in the rest of the psalm. It's a metaphor for the Christian who believes and yet there's no refreshment or joy to be found. And we see that in verse 2. The psalmist is thirsting for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So it's not as though he's denied God. It's not as though he's going to the wrong place to find God. He's going to the places that he would normally go to to find God, and he's just not experiencing God in the same way that he always has. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? And perhaps a better translation of this is, when will I come and see the face of God? He feels that he's lost God. He can't see him. He doesn't find in his Christian life what he once did. What, what used to give him satisfaction and quench his thirst, he's not finding that anymore. What used to fill his tank doesn't do that. Now he just finds a dry riverbed. There's no satisfaction for his thirst. And I would ask you, have you ever felt that way? In your Christian life, have you ever felt that way, a distance from God? As I said earlier, I think if we're honest, we'll say that we, we have all experienced that. So if you haven't, though, I think there's really only two options for you. You either haven't been a believer for a really long period of time, and you just haven't lived your Christian life long enough, to experience that, that distance from God or that feeling of, of distance from God. Or the other possibility is that you're not yet a believer in Christ. And if that's you, if you're here today and you have not experienced God, you have not experienced that, that salvation that Jesus provides, then I can assure you that you, your tank truly is empty. It's not just a momentary thing or a, a a time thing. This is an eternal reality is that you are eternally separated from the one who created you. And there's no hope for you apart from the work of Jesus, apart from what he did on the cross. There's nothing you can do or say or think that's going to make you right with the just creator of the universe. The only hope that we have is in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We sang about this earlier. He lived the life that we haven't lived, that we can't live, he perfectly obeyed the Father, and it's only through a relationship with Christ that we're able to be made right with God. So if that's you, then I would ask you to listen to this message, read this psalm through that lens, and understand that God is inviting you into a relationship 
with him. But if you are a believer in Christ, and if you have felt this way, then you understand that it can feel helpless. You can feel, this is maddeningly frustrating, you can feel hopeless in this situation. And this is, really, if we read the psalm, that's what he's expressing. You'll notice if you read the psalm, it appears that things are maybe getting a little bit better, he's remembering some things, and then all of a sudden he remembers his circumstances, and he remembers the enemies that are oppressing him. And then he starts to feel a little bit better, and remembers some things about God, and then he he, once again, is downcast. That's the way it is often when we're spiritually depressed. We have these ups and downs. It's kind of confusing. It's like a whirlwind. And the psalmist captures that really well. So this psalm helps to prepare us for those times when we are spiritually depressed, when we cannot experience God in the way that we once did. So before we look at the cures, what this psalm says are the cures for spiritual depression. There's a couple of things I want to point out about this psalm. Uh, the first thing, as I already mentioned, that the psalmist has lost the experience of God, that relational understanding, that back and forth. But the psalmist hasn't lost God himself. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because only a believer pants for God. Only a believer is going to pant for God. Only a believer is going to put his hope in God, tell himself to hope in God. And I find this immensely encouraging that this psalm was written by and is about a true believer in the midst of spiritual depression. Uh, these are real life things that I experience, that other believers experience, and here we have it in scripture as well. So just because I'm experiencing this doesn't mean that I need to doubt God or doubt my salvation. Second thing that I want us to notice is the repeated verses in verses 5 and 11 is exactly the same thing. He just repeats himself. And even beyond that, we see the same types of thoughts in verses 1 through 4 as in verses 6 through 10. So in other words, they're the same themes or the same patterns that he's, he's repeating. And it, it speaks again just to that, that feeling of being in a whirlwind. He's repeating himself. He's, he's feeling this way, and then he says verse 5, and then he feels that same similar kind of way again. So these same themes throughout. And then the third thing is that there's no mention of sin in this psalm. Now, there's several psalms that allude to spiritual depression and talk about spiritual depression occurring because we have sinned. And that does happen. When we sin, it does cause some sort of a disconnect or some sort of a a rift in that relationship. Just like if you sin against your spouse or you sin against a friend, it's going to cause a difficulty in that relationship. Same thing when we sin against God. But in this case, in this psalm, there's no evidence of sin. There's no guilt expressed. There's no confession of sin. Spiritual depression will happen and does happen because of sin, but sometimes spiritual depression just happens just comes out of nowhere. As part of our normal life as a Christian, sometimes we are just feeling distant from God and there's, there's really not something that we've done that's, that causes that. And the psalmist is speaking to that. So if we don't deal with spiritual depression appropriately, then it will consume us. And it'll cause long-time faithful believers to begin to doubt God, to begin to doubt their salvation. So this is something that, that needs to be addressed. And the Bible deals with spiritual depression as a real thing. That's part of why God has included psalms like this is because he doesn't want us to, to just fake it and act like it's not happening. 
He doesn't want us to be surprised when it does happen. He wants us to be prepared. And so he's given us this psalm to help prepare us for that. So how do we deal with spiritual depression? What what is the way that that this psalm tells us to deal with this? Well, there's several uh, really helpful, wonderful things that the psalmist does in dealing with spiritual depression. But the thread throughout each of these things is that he doesn't give up. So there's no hint of him just saying, I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to open up a bag of Cheetos and just wait for God to do something. Uh, there, there's no, he's not throwing his hands in the air and saying, whatever, God, you know, I'm just going to wait on you. So he's active in what he's doing to address his spiritual depression. So even though he's active, let's not be mistaken. Uh, the, the same God who had the power to pull a dead Jewish man out of a hole in the ground in the Middle East 2,000 years ago has the power to pull us out of spiritual depression. But he doesn't always act so dramatically. And he doesn't do that here in this case. So what does the psalmist do? Well, the first thing that he does is he admits his need. He actually puts it much more eloquently in verse 4. He says, he pours out my soul. So he's not afraid to share anything and everything with God. Now, how how different is that than some of the advice that we receive uh, from our friends, from family, from the world? Uh, We are either told, often either told to to hide our feelings, to stuff them, to keep them to ourselves, don't let anybody see them, or we're told to just vent them, dump them, just spit them out and then leave. Leave them there and get away from them. But what does Scripture tell us to do? Scripture tells us to pour out our soul, and not just to pour out our soul to anybody, but to pour out our soul to the creator of the universe, the one who loves us to process those. And even though he admits that he's lost some sense of an experience with God, it doesn't stop him from talking to God. He continues to reach out and try to talk to God. So I would ask you, do you do that? Do you share your your feelings, your experiences, your life with God? Do you pour out your soul to God? And if not, what is keeping you from doing that? We need to examine ourselves and pour out our soul to God. So we're going to spend just just a moment of time talking about what what some of the things that he poured out were. Uh, I'm a little hesitant to do this because spiritual depression looks different for different people. So just because he's pouring out his soul about these things doesn't mean that that's what we're going to experience when we're in the middle of spiritual depression. Uh, But I think it is helpful for us to look just briefly at some of the things that he poured out his soul about. So the first thing, uh, verse 10, shows that he's focused on and he's distressed about his life. He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he's being accused, he's being oppressed, or at least he feels that way. And that's kind of echoed in verse 3 as well. So externally, as circumstances are bleak, it seems that others have abandoned him. People seem to notice that he's downcast. They're asking where God is in the midst of this. So this is not very encouraging for him. Second thing he he admits, or that he pours out his soul about, is that he's physically weak. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So he's physically weak. He's not eating very well because his tears are his food. He describes his tears being 
the nourishment that he's getting. In other words, he's not getting any nourishment. And he's not sleeping well either. He's in anguish both during the day and at night. So physically, he's feeling the effects. In verse 10, we already read, he's, he's mentioning that he feels as though he's been wounded as well. So we talked about spiritual depression and physical depression. Those, those can go hand in hand, and sometimes they do. And your physical life can affect your spiritual life. If you're feeling, well or feeling unwell physically, sometimes that can affect your spiritual life. It doesn't always happen that way, but it can. But just like uh, school administrators will say, teachers will say that if a kid comes to school hungry, then are they going to be able to learn? Are they going to be able to focus on learning? No. Same way, if we are physically hurting, if there's something ailing us, sometimes that's going to, to affect our spiritual life. And we have to address the physical as well as the spiritual. That's one great thing about our uh, sabbatical that we offer our, our lead pastor. Uh, not that he's uh, spiritually depressed, but it's an opportunity for him to be refreshed and to be renewed physically and to be able to come back to us uh, spiritually renewed and refreshed and ready to give everything for us. So are these things that are always true when you're spiritually depressed? As I said, no. It, it may be different for you, but the point is, is that the psalmist was pouring out his soul about what he was going through, what he was experiencing in that time. So we have to do the same when we're spiritually depressed. We can't give up on talking to God. So he pours out his soul. But the second thing that he does is that he remembers God. If we look at the, the first part of verse 4, we see that word remember. We see it in the, the second part of verse 6, remember. It's actually all through this psalm. He's, he's remembering things about God. He's remembering events. He's remembering God's character. He's, he's remembering who God is to him. And why is that important that he's remembering? Well, that, that's a theme not just in the psalm, but that's a theme throughout Scripture that we are told to remember. Uh, the Israelites were told to remember the Passover and how God brought them out of Egypt. Uh, they were uh, told to erect uh, standing stones or, or um, monuments that would mark events where God was real to them. God did something in the life of the Israelites. At the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus say? He said, whenever you drink this cup, whenever you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. Over and over and over again, we're told to remember God, remember what he has done for us. And the psalmist is doing just that. Remembering gives us courage for the present. Remembering gives us courage for the present by drawing on the truth of the past. Remembering gives us hope that the state we are presently in won't last forever. So what does the psalmist remember? Well, in verse 4, it says, These things I remember, how, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's remembering times of worship. He's remembering times of fellowship with other believers. So these Sunday mornings are, are more important than I think we would realize. He, he's not being just nostalgic. He's, he's remembering those times when God was meaningful in his life in the midst of corporate worship. So we should take these Sunday mornings seriously. Uh, 
they're good for us today as, as, we, as we gather to worship, as we gather to worship through, through singing and through giving, through serving, through listening to God's word, but they're, they're important for us to, to drive a stake in the ground and be reminded later on when we are spiritually depressed that we met God in the midst of a community of believers. Verse 6, you remember some event. He says, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. So he remembers some event where God was real to him in his past. We don't know what that is, but he does. He remembers what that event was, and he's reminding himself of how important that was and how God was real to him at that time. Verse 8, he remembers the loving kindness of God. He remembers the love of God by day, and at night he remembers and he even sings of God. And I, I will spare you that reenactment. I won't sing of God for you today. And then in verse 7, it says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's reminding himself of God and his ways, that even though he's being overwhelmed, he's, he's remembering that these are God's breakers, God's waves, that God is in complete control, that God is sovereign over even the events that he's going through. He's reminding himself of God's character in that. And in verse 9, another example, he remembers God as his rock, as his sure foundation, immovable, unchanging. So the point for us is this. If we don't spend time today knowing God, then we won't have real memories of God when we really do need it. Remembering the characteristics of, characteristics of God, the names of God, is so valuable in times of spiritual depression. So I would ask you, what will you do today? What will you do later this afternoon to help you to remember God? Maybe it's on your phone making a note or uh, going old school and actually getting out a piece of paper and writing down, this is where I've met God. This is, these are some events where God was real to me, where I experienced God. That will prove helpful for you today, and that will prove help for you, helpful for you when you're in the midst of spiritual depression as well. So he admits his needs, he remembers God, and the third thing he does is he examines himself. So even, in, even though he's in the midst of turmoil in verses 5 and 11, uh, he, or in this whole psalm, verses 5 and 11 show that he's fighting for hope. He's fighting for hope. He's not surrendering, he's not giving up, he's not lying down. He's up and he's examining himself. Now how can I say that? How can I say that he's examining himself? Well, it's because he's not asking us why he's cast down. He's not saying, tell me why I'm cast down. He's not even asking God that in this situation. Who's he asking? He's asking himself. He says, why am I downcast, O my soul? So even though there's no mention of sin in this psalm, the psalmist is not taking that for granted. He's examining himself to try to understand why, why am I feeling the way that I am feeling? Why am I feeling distant from God? Why am I disconnected in some way? So he hasn't given up, saying, why am I downcast? So we may not see evidence of sin in this psalm, but that doesn't stop him from looking for evidence of sin. The psalmist is saying the problem can't be that God has moved away from me. The problem can't be that God has forsaken me. It may just be a phase that I'm going through, or it could be that there's some sin in my life, but let me examine myself 
to try to understand what's going on and why I'm feeling the way I am. I think it's really interesting that he, he uses this word hope in verses 5 and 11. It's almost as though he's saying, have I put my hope in something other than God? And that's so easy for us to do, to put our hopes. Todd prayed about that. It's so easy for us to put our hope in something other than God, our career, finances, our looks, our uh, talents and abilities. We could go on and on with that, our health, our behavior. Those things let you down, and they always will, but God never lets us down. Hope in God. Put your hope in God. And that leads us to our, our fourth and our final cure. So he's admitted his needs, he's remembered God, he's examined himself, and now he's finally in a position to preach to himself. He preaches to himself. What's his answer to himself? The questions that he's asked. Why am I downcast? Well, his answer, as we said, it's to hope in God. So I would ask, have you ever preached to yourself? Do you do that? Everybody does that. Everybody preaches to themselves. Uh, the great preacher of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a book titled Spiritual Depression. He preached a series of sermons on Psalm 42 and wrote a book about that. And in that book, he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take these thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now this man, talking about the psalmist in Psalm 42, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. As the good doctor said, I, I, I don't think that we just preach anything to ourselves. I think that we, we tend to do one of two things. We either, either say uh, lies to ourselves, bad things. We're, we're, uh, that inner voice is giving a running commentary on how bad we've been, what, what bad decisions. That was a bad decision. That was a stupid thing that we did. Um, you're never going to do this. So it's, it's lies about ourselves. Or we tell ourselves lies in a good way. We, we say, um, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Or the, the saying that is really popular now is, you do you. You've probably heard that. I, I can assure you that most people do not need to follow that advice. Uh, we don't need to listen to ourselves, tell ourselves that. We need to do something else. And we need to do what the psalmist did. And what the psalmist do? The psalmist told himself the truth about God, about who God is. The truth about his situation. So it's not just a platitude. He's not just patting himself on the forehead and saying, there, there, you'll, you'll be better, it's okay. Look at verses 5 and 11. It's not self-denial. He's not just giving a shade off the truth. He's not saying, hope in God, for I am praising you. Because he's not praising God. He may be praising him occasionally in here, but he's, he's up and down in this whirlwind of spiritual depression. So it's not denying the truth of what he's doing, but neither is it complete falsehood either. He's not saying, hope in God, even though I'll never be able to praise God again. 
He's not telling himself a lie like that. Instead, he's saying, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's saying, I will experience, I'm trusting that I will experience God again the way that I once did before. So friends, he was saying this, this is really important, he was saying this even though he probably didn't feel that that was true. Even though his feelings were telling him something different, he was preaching the truth of God to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So we need to speak the truth to ourselves even when we don't feel that truth to be true. John Piper said, the battle against spiritual depression is really a battle to believe God's promises. And preaching to ourselves is at the heart of that battle to believe God's promises. So you don't have to remain stuck in spiritual depression. So how can the psalmist say this? How can he say, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation? How, how can he, he say that with such confidence? And even more, how can, how can he even say that at all? How can we say that? Well, it would be very easy to turn this, this psalm or these cures into just a to-do list, a checklist. Have I examined myself? Have I preached to myself? Check the box, check the box. Am I remembering God? Uh, and, and just say that it's all done, and that's great and wonderful. But it really doesn't work that way. We, we don't have the strength or the energy, the ability. We weren't created to be able to do that in our own strength, or at least not for very long. We might be able to keep that up for a day or two or for a few minutes, but, but not consistently over time. We have to look at the, the means behind the cure, the power behind the cure. And what do I mean by that? Well, verse, verse 9 just really jumps out at me. It says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I think this epitomizes the entire psalm and the entire feeling of being spiritually depressed, feeling like God has forgotten us when we're in the midst of spiritual depression. And this reminded me of the story of, of Kitty Genovese. Um, probably not familiar to you. Some of you may remember this when I, when I tell you. This was in all of my psychology textbooks when I was... Uh, in undergrad, a story, sad story of, of um, trying to explain or trying to help us understand human behavior. But Kenny Genovese was a woman who lived in New York City in the 1960s. And one uh, late evening, she was walking home from work and she was attacked by a man. And she was, uh, it was on the street in front of a, a pretty large apartment complex. And she was crying out for help. Somebody help me, somebody save me, somebody rescue me. And we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that the assailant left at that point, probably because he was afraid of, of her cries for help, probably afraid that somebody would, would come down and intervene. And we also know that in the apartment complex above, there were several lights that came on. People looked out the window, saw what was happening, heard the commotion, but no one came down. No one came down to rescue her. Now we don't know why. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they didn't want to get involved, didn't think it was their business, uh, thought that, that this was something that was better left to somebody else, but they didn't even call the police. And the sad part is, is that just a few minutes later, the assailant was probably still there watching to see what would happen, and he came back and he killed her. Friends, she was forgotten, but we have a God 
who did not forget us. We had a God, we have a God who came down, who was willing, not just at the risk of his life, but knowing that he would die for us. He came down, not just to save us from our sin, but to save us in our time of need, when we're spiritually depressed, when we're feeling forgotten. He is there. And when he was approaching the cross, he had nothing. Everything was taken from him. Even his clothes were taken from him. And then on the cross, as our sin was poured out on him, and the wrath of the Father was poured out on him in response to that sin, even the love of the Father was taken from him. And he was separated from the one in whom he had never experienced anything but sweet fellowship. And at that point, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced Psalm 42, and even more deeply than Psalm 42 expresses. So let's read back through portions of this with that in mind. Verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And Jesus is the one who fully and completely showed us that his life, that our life, needs to be totally and completely dependent on God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Who's the one who talked of his father in that intimate of a way? The one who separated himself from the Father in heaven and came to be with us and while he was here was craving to have that eternal, unseparated community with his Father. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And don't you remember how Jesus was taunted, how he was mocked? on his way to the cross, how he was hanging on the cross and people were saying, if you really are God, then save yourself. Where is your God? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And can't you hear the voice of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, shriveled up, nearly no life left in him, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the one who is truly oppressed by his enemies. And he can fully and completely empathize with you in your time of need and feeling forsaken by God. But friends, Jesus didn't merely experience the feeling of losing connection with God. He actually did lose that connection with God. He experienced the full weight of that on the cross. And even knowing that, he didn't give in to the fear. He still came down to us to rescue us. Because he was willing to leave his father, our soul's thirst can be quenched by the living God. And when we're spiritually depressed, we may feel like we've been separated by God. We may have that subjective feeling that we're separated from God. We may feel distant. But Jesus really was forsaken by God. And why was he forsaken? Well, he was forsaken so that God would never forget us. We have assurance that because Christ truly did experience Psalm 42, and even more than Psalm 42, we can endure through our spiritual depression. We don't have to be downcast. We don't have to believe the lies of our adversaries that we've been forsaken. We can admit our needs. We can remember God. We can examine ourselves. 
We can preach to ourselves. Because Jesus was forsaken, God will never forget us, even in our spiritual depression. And because of that, we can rightly and truly say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone. You have not left us in our sin, that you have sent your son to save us. And not only that, he saved us for eternity, but he is still, you are still with us here. You have sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us, to encourage us, to lead us to your truth. We are not forgotten. God, we thank you that even in the midst of, of spiritual depression, even in the midst of something that is part of a, a normal experience of being a Christian, that you have shown us the way to get out of that spiritual depression. You've shown us the power behind that. So God, we thank you for your word. We pray that, that we as believers, whether we're in spiritual depression right now or we're headed that way, that we would remember you and remember what you've done for us. And God, if there are people here who have not put their trust in you, I pray that they would talk to someone in this room, that they would not leave with those questions still weighing on them, that they would seek, seek you and seek the answers that you would give. We pray this in Jesus' name.